Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Jonathan Last. I'm the editor of The Bulwark, and I am honored to be here with you for today's program and pleased to be joined by George Will, a columnist for The Washington Post and author of the new book, American Happiness and Discontents, The Unruly Torrent, 2008 to 2020. George has been a columnist since 1974, and if you won't mind me saying so, he is the great essayist of his generation. Uh, what writers would call a five-tool player, he hits to all fields with powers. Uh, I And I, I mean this totally sincerely. George is the only essayist in America who can give you a column about electoral politics on Monday, uh, the Revolutionary War on Thursday, and then baseball on Sunday, and have each of them be fully formed and cogent and then beautifully rendered to boot. Uh, this is, there is, there is one of his essays in, in this book, which literally begins with Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys and then transitions smoothly to James Q. Wilson, the sociologist. And I, I am not aware of any other writer living or dead who can pull that off. Uh, American Happiness and Discontents is a collection of his columns from 2008 to 2020. And it is both as energetic and felicitous as the first book of his that I picked up when I was 15 years old, which was The Pursuit of Virtue and Other Tory Notions. We're going to talk a lot over the next hour, and I'd like to ask George your questions, too. If you're watching along with us, please put your questions into the text chat on YouTube, and we'll get to them later on in the program. George, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for doing this. I'm glad to be with you. So the, the screenwriter, William Goldman, used to say that every December he, he would write a column and he'd say, this was the worst year in the history of movies, and next year will be worse. Do you feel the same way about the America you've been chronicling for the last 50 years? This is a pretty bad year. Uh, leaving aside the pandemic, the man-made contribution to the badness of this year is, is pretty severe. Uh, and it's, I'm never a little ray of sunshine, but it's particularly hard now to be uh, optimistic. So what, what is the progress of America look like? I mean, I, I'd like to, I'd like to ask you both this sort of with different time frames. the overall progress of America from 2008 until where we sit today, what does that curve look like to you? What happened in 2008 is Barack Obama was elected. And the nation began to be infested with uh, terrible, crazy rumors. He's a Muslim. He's not born in the United States. He's ineligible to be president. And the period covered by this book from 2008 to 2020, of course, is what happens through the successor to Barack Obama. And uh, America seems to be have a kind of unfocused furiousness. There are a large number of Americans, not by any means a majority. For most Americans, politics is a peripheral distraction. Uh, we tend to forget that there are 331 million people in this country, and at any given moment, 325 million of them are not watching cable television and not listening to angry talk radio. They're fixing the screen door and cleaning the gutters and getting on with life. But the tone is set of our public life by some of these new technologies. And it's, uh, it's, I'd like your opinion. I used to believe that the quantity of stupidity relative to the size of the population was one of nature's constants. I'm not so sure anymore. Uh, there just seems to be, to be more stupidity around. Now, it could be that the social media gives such velocity to stupidity because the social media are made for stupidity. That is short, brief explosions of vitriol and insult and indignation. Still, it's hard not to think that we're, brains are being rewired by these technologies, and certainly habits of discourse are being changed by these technologies. Uh, so again, as I say, it's hard not to be discouraged. It, yet, you know, the, the book is not a book of discouragement. I mean, the, the book itself is American happiness. If I was going to to really press you on this, what would be the bullish case for America? What, what would be the case of, look, what we've seen recently, you know, it, the arc we've seen over the last 10 years, 20 years may not look great, but actually things are going to be okay. The bullish case for America begins with the fact that millions of people around the world are fighting to get in. 
the bullish case for America is it works. The record of success of sheer increase of human well-being on the part of this country and in this country is one of the stunning achievements of world history. Uh, the institutions which are constantly said to be fragile are not fragile. This is a country that's been through much worse uh, and survived. We've had January 6th, of course, was unpleasant. So was Shiloh and Antietam and Fredericksburg. Uh, big, big problems. So that's the case for America, is the institutions are durable, that, that the founders knew what they were doing when they produced this constitutional architecture. Against that, you have to say, if you believe, as I do, that, as has been said, politics is downstream from culture, there are problems with the culture. They infest our campuses, but what happens on campus doesn't stay on campus. And we are a nation that cannot reproduce elites that believe in and love the country is a nation with, with problems. And I think we're such a nation right now. So uh, good. Well, I'm glad we've got the optimism out of the way. I, I don't plan on returning to that. We've, I, before we've we, that bill now. Before we leave optimism <laughs> entirely in our rearview mirror, I think my columns are funny. I'm not they're, considered they're, a, a barrel of laughs, but if if I write a column that doesn't cause someone to either laugh out loud or at least smile at some point, I've failed. Uh, I I you know I have in my notes here. Uh, I literally I wrote down Pecksniffian comstockery, <laughs> which is one. Of the, and when I when I stumbled on that one, I just I just thought to myself. Of course, George Will wrote this phrase, and it's it's perfect. We'll, we'll get to pick sniffing and comstockery in a, in a moment. So one, one of the things I was going to ask you, because um, you talk a lot, one of your recurring themes is how bumbling and sclerotic government can be. Uh, if you combine that with uh, a culture which is less serious than it used to be and a society which in which perhaps, perhaps the... Uh, once constant level of stupidity is increasing. Uh, has this combined to make you more libertarian than you used to be? Yes, uh, emphatically yeah. it has. Uh, I stand by statecraft as soulcraft. I stand by the fact that virtue is indispensable and is a Tory notion. That said, uh, 50-some years at the center of Washington politics, watching the transaction costs of democracy, log-rolling, uh, the additive nature of legislative bargaining. You support my projects A, B, and C. I'll support your projects D, E, and F. I understand all that. I understand the messiness of it. Uh, so it, it's not as though I had a sentimental view and have been disabused. A, a woman giving her maiden speech in the House of Commons a few years ago said, democracy is like sex. If it isn't messy, you're not doing it right. Well, Lord knows we're doing it right. Yeah, I guess. It, it's messy. Uh, but uh, that's not what disturbs me. What disturbs me is the fact that as the government becomes more interventionist, more deeply involved in the allocation of wealth and opportunity, to the degree that government edges aside the market in allocating wealth and opportunity, the stakes of politics become... Uh, dangerously high, the distributional conflicts become dangerously central, the cost of losing becomes dangerously scary for people, and politics becomes A, more enveloping and bitter. And that's why as a, the libertarianish side of me says, to, you, you've got to confine the state to certain essentials. Bad enough that they aren't filling the potholes, but leave that aside. Um, it, it is, it, it's just dangerous when the government undertakes to envelop the citizenry. But the, isn't the problem that we now have something close to a bipartisan consensus on the size of government, which is that it should be bigger? You have one of your columns in this is... A, a, wonderfully scathing attack on the nationalist conservatives, which, uh, which I, 
I felt deep in all of my erogenous zones. And uh, this is this is it seems to me one of the places where we have a great deal of bipartisan overlap now, and there isn't a lot of of room left for for people who who would like to, as you say, lower reduce the size of government, lower the stakes, and lower the temperature. Right, and this is one of the reasons we're getting to the place where we are now. I think as a political culture, you, you're you're quite right. My conviction is that for all the discord, and it's real enough that we hear about. The most frightening thing in Washington is the consensus that extends from left to right. Deep is the Grand Canyon, broad is the, the Republic, and it is that we should have a large, expensive, ever more generous entitlement state and not pay for it. Everyone's agreed. I think the political class is more united by class interest than it is divided by ideology. And the class interest is an incentive for a permanent deficit spending to fob, oh, 25%, 20% of federal spending off on the unconsenting because unborn future generations. We used to borrow money for the future, fought wars, built bridges, roads, harbors, airports for the future. Now we're borrowing money from the future in order to support our current consumption of government goods and services. It is unsustainable. Everyone is unsustainable. Paul Ryan when before Trump was nominated, but after he clinched the nomination, he sat down with him in Washington, intending to give him a, a, a thorough briefing on the, the unsustainability of the entitlement structures. Shortly into Paul's disquisition, Trump said, yeah, 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 yeah. But when all that bad stuff happens, I'll be gone. Now, that's everybody's view. Trump simply says it with a characteristic crudeness, but uh, you know, there's it, an old saying, the first rule of economics is that scarcity is real. The first rule of politics is to ignore the first rule of economics. And that's what we're doing today. So I, you know, I, to be honest, I think I maybe have had my fill of talking about politics already, because one of the things which I, I think people who do, maybe people who don't read you closely is that for a political columnist, You've always written very sparingly about politics, as people broadly understand. I think American happiness, it, it covers 2008 to 2020. And I believe the number of mentions of Barack Obama and Donald Trump can probably be counted on two hands and one foot. Uh, you are much more, I've, I've always joked about this with my friends when we talk about you, which is a thing that happens all the time, um, that you are like a doctor of applied political philosophy, which is to say you go out and look at the world and see political philosophy in vivo. And, and so you wind up talking about history and culture and law and the academy. Uh, one of the subjects which you've always covered and, and talked about and continue to in American happiness is race. And I was curious as to how you've seen America's challenges with race changing over the years. The most stunning change to me is the denial of the obvious, which is the extraordinary improvement in my lifetime. I was born in 1941 into a country in which Jim Crow was not just down south. Uh, how many Americans, when you say Brown v. Board of Education, think, well, that must have come from Mississippi? No, no, came from Topeka, Kansas, where they had a segregated school system. The Supreme Court acquired a tremendous infusion of prestige from Brown v. Board of Education precisely because it went against public opinion. People say, oh, this, the Supreme Court and judicial review are anomalous institutions in a democracy because they, they pose the counter-majoritarian dilemma. Nonsense. Uh, Majorities are a necessary component of a Republican system, but they're inherently a problem. And you have to pol police with the judiciary, have supervision of our democracy. In 50 years of writing this, I've made one, a number of changes, but one major change in my thinking. I was, in 1973 and four. A Borkian. Bob Bork was a good friend of mine. Bork was an Oliver Wendell Holmes man in the sense that he thought the most important thing was majority's rule. Uh, and I thought the same thing. However, my doctoral dissertation at Princeton's title was Beyond the Reach of Majorities. It comes from Justice Jackson's great opinion in the second of the flag salute cases when they took back the first one and said, actually, you can't force Jehovah's Witnesses' children 
to violate their conscience by saluting the flag. And Justice Jackson said, the very purpose of a Bill of Rights is to place certain things beyond the reach of majority. So whereas I used to say, as conservatives reflexively did, that I was for judicial restraint, reacting against some of the more high-flying improvisations of the Warren Court, I now believe that the court is not active enough, not engaged enough, that deference to majoritarian institutions, be they city councils or Congress, is often a dereliction of the judicial duty to defend individual rights against majorities. Can I give my little survey of where I come from in Illinois? Grew up, grew up in Champaign-Urbana, Lincoln country, downstate. According to local lore, it was in the Champaign County Courthouse, great Midwestern scene. There's a square in Urbana, Illinois, and a great red sandstone courthouse. Lincoln, a prosperous traveling railroad lawyer, was in that courthouse when he learned that Illinois Senator Stephen Douglas had successfully passed the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Douglas said, the question rending the country is, what do we do about the question of expanding slavery into the territories? His solution was popular sovereignty. Have a vote. Vote slavery up, vote slavery down. It's a matter of moral indifference because the great moral principle is majority rule. Lincoln's recoil from that began his ascent to greatness. Lincoln said, nope, America's not about a process majority rule. It's about a condition, liberty. Conceived in liberty and still that's what we are about. So I have come around to a large role for the judiciary. And, and one of the things that surprised me as I was putting the book together is how often I write about uh, the duty of the court to step in and uh, supervise the excesses of our democracy. So this is this is one of the one of the interesting tensions. So you write a lot about the law, and yet at the same time you make the point in one of your essays when you're talking about baseball that the most important laws are always the unwritten ones, right? The un, the unwritten rules. And it seems to me that both in government and in society, uh, those rules and laws are all disappearing. Is that is that wrong? And if it's not wrong, what's to be done about it? I mean, it, it does seem to me that we are entering a place where, you know, Rick Santorum, God love him, of all people, uh, used to have a whole rap about this, about how, you know, a, a democracy that is not virtuous cannot remain a democracy for long because you can't legislate everything. You can't write down every single law that you need. You need people to intuit the, the things which are unwritten and you, which can't be codified. What's happening with this? What's happening is when the big unwritten rules lapse and are ignored, what you get is a profusion of small written rules. The, the attempt but to micromanage the citizenry to substitute for spontaneous habitual virtue. Virtue is a habit. Aristotle was right. And when you lose the habit, you have to be governed by uh, rules, which annoy people and are no substitute because they are, you can't substitute for habits. Uh, you, get, you get a kind of simmering anarchy of willfulness on the part of people who resent the fact that there are all these rules. Uh, what do you do about it? I don't know. I mean, because it's arguable that, that once the habits are gone, they're gone. And the, the basis of, of re-inculcating them just isn't there anymore. What happens, though, right? It just it happens in these black swan events like the, the Great Awakenings, right? I mean, you know, society d devolves and then all of a sudden... Uh, an event happens, something happens, which shakes things. The problem is that, you know, like Monty Python, nobody plans for an inquisition. Nobody plans for a great awakening. You can't, you can't make it happen by, by wishing it so. Irving Kristol and Roger Starr and some others uh, used to be fascinated by what happened in England when distilling came along, the science of distilling, and gin became plentiful and cheap. And it took a horrible toll on families, on the social fabric of the burgeoning cities of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, they tried to pass some laws. They had hours laws on how long the pubs could be open and all that. But that's not what 
took care of Jen. John Wesley took care of Jen. He gave about 20,000 talks over his lifetime, and he, cre he converted the women, and the women disciplined the men, and things got a lot better. It wasn't laws. It was the equivalent of a great awakening. No one planned John Wesley. He's just one of those forces of nature that happened. So we need a John Wesley before everything falls apart. Is the problem? We need a, we, right. need, <laughs> we need a John Wesley, several John Wesleys. We, we had one in Martin Luther King. Uh, we need some more for what we now rather grandly and foolishly call our racial reckoning that we're going through. Uh, here's why: for all the talk about how seriously we're taking our racial problem, we've gone through the last year and a half, two years of obsessing about this with people scrupulously avoiding the elephant in the room. We know what it is. It's family disintegration. We know abundant social science proves that family structure is a predictive factor of great power. And we know that when 69% of African-American children are born to unmarried mothers, we know that's a problem. It's not just an African-American problem. It's particularly severe for that community. But a majority of American mothers, all mothers, all races, colors, a majority of American mothers under 30 are not living with the fathers of their children. 40% of all American first births are to unmarried women. We know what the cost of that is. When Pat Moynihan, in 1965, he was a young social scientist in Lyndon Johnson Labor Department, when he first raised this issue with his, his famous Moynihan report, he said, the lesson of history is clear from the wild Irish slums of the East Coast in the 19th century to South Los Angeles today when you have a large cohort of adolescent males without male parents, you have chaos. Now, I am a parent of four children. I know that civilizing adolescent males is what life is about. Civilization depends on that because they are unruly and dangerous. And this is the subject no one wants to talk about. It's sex, it's race, and we've had this outpouring, this Niagara of words for the last two years avoiding the subject. I want to talk a little bit about writing and the writing life, if I can can trespass on your tolerance for that. Um, the, so I, you know, I was as I was reading through this book and thinking about how you've been able to do this at such a high level from from the start to, to today with honestly no drop off in quality, which is not something you see people who, who pay attention to writing. If you follow a, a newspaper columnist uh, by year 20, they are they are not the writer they were at year one most of the time, almost all the time. Uh, and the secret I've always thought to me a good columnist is being a, a good reporter which is what your columns mostly are. I think people don't quite get that. Not only do you go out and about, you will actually go places and you know interview people and talk to people, uh, but you'll read books. And you know, I think pe people who aren't writers sometimes don't understand that reading books and then writing about them is a form of reporting. Yeah. I, and if I don't, if I don't, I write a hundred columns a year. If I don't write 15 of them on books, I'm not doing my job. Henry Kissinger famously said, when you come to Washington, you start running down your intellectual capital because you don't have time to replenish it. Well, in my business, you better replenish it. Uh, that is I the truest read, thing in the world. I read uh, three, four, or five hours a day. I get up every morning at 5.20. At 5.21, I'm listening to a, an audible book. As I shave, shower, groom, exercise, commute to work, two and a half to three hours a day in Otherwise wasted time is spent ingesting stuff. People say, what's your, what's your profession? Are you a writer? Yeah, I'm actually a reader. The writing is the distillation of the reading. Now, it helps to like to write. And I love to write. It, putting sentences together is almost a tactile pleasure. A lot of writers hate to write. T.S. Eliot once said that Henry James wrote as though it was a painful duty. I just enjoy it. The great sports writer, Red Smith, said, nothing to writing, you just open a vein and bleed. Nonsense. Writing's fun. I'm paid to do something I would pay to do. That sort of indicates that one of the, my basic propositions in life is that the price system works because it's rational. It's irrational in my case. I shouldn't be paid. Having written 
is what we all like, is what all, all writers enjoy having written. The actual process of writing varies from, from practitioner to practitioner. Uh, so I get one of the... I, one of the big questions is is reading, because this is, I, again, I think people who aren't writers don't quite understand that reading is two thirds of what we do at, you know, at the least. Uh, how many books are you reading and, and what, how do you divide that up between books that you're reading, reading the Internet, which is hard to do, uh, and keeping up with what I think of as real journalism, which is to say, uh you know, not just the day-to-day goings-on, but then reading magazines, reading long-form journals. And that's what, how do you get that mix right? Because it's very, very hard to do even one of those three disciplines well as a reader. Well, uh, I read the aggregators, real clear politics, real clear policy, real clear defense, real clear world. That aggregate, there's a tremendous amount of really good writing going on in this country, often by young writers. And you collect, you, you connect with them there. I read Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, New York Times, Financial Times, Economist, et cetera, et cetera, all that stuff. But essential is the uh, books. We come back to that. Books are still, in my judgment, the primary carriers of ideas. Ideas have consequences. Famous title of uh, Weaver's book that was a canonical text of the early conservative revival in the United States after the Second World War. I would just change that to say only ideas have large and lasting consequences. So read books. I'm Right now, I just uh, uh, am reading a book by Greg Easterbrook on called, uh, what is it called? The Blue Age. It's about the role of the United States Navy in producing tranquil oceans so that globalization could lift 4 billion people from subsistence poverty in the last 40 years. I'm reading that because next week I'm having a breakfast with a congresswoman who knows more about the Navy than anyone else, and I want to be able to talk to her, and I'll write a column. So the column will come out of reading a book and talking with this intelligent woman and reading a file of clips on the Navy, all for 750 words. And so how many, I mean, with your process, how many of these balls do you have in the air at one time, right? So you, you've already planned out this column, you're writing. How many other, you know, semi-serious ideas, semi-concrete ideas for columns are you working on at a given moment? Uh, counting the reading that I clip and put in the files for those columns, five to ten. I, well, I now know that I mean, there's never been a day, honestly, that I didn't have five things I wanted to write about, Never. When I first got into this business, I asked of Bill Buckley a question that I now know to be the most frequently asked question of a columnist, which is, how do you come up with things to write about? Bill said, the world irritates me three times a week. Well, <laughs> the world irritates me or interests me or piques my curiosity or amuses me constantly. You know, it was said of Napoleon that he could not look at a landscape without seeing a battlefield. A columnist should be incapable of looking at the world without seeing column topics. They're everywhere. They bombard you. They grab you by the lapels and shake you and say, write about me. So aside from the, aside from the big think substance of this, uh, you seem to have a, a gigantic magazine, a gigantic art, uh, arms depot where you have stocked interesting facts or phrases or bon mots. Uh, I, I've jotted just like three of them down here, which I was particularly tickled by. Uh, one being that in January 1942 in the Philippines, the U.S. Army performed its final mounted cavalry charge. And then 12 months later, underground at the University of Chicago, scientists took the first experimental step towards the creation of nuclear weapons. That's astonishingly interesting. Uh, two American socialists equals three factions which made me laugh out loud. Uh, and then Pecksniffian comes stalkery. Are you, are you putting these things down on index cards and just keeping a file of thousands of them that you can just reach into <laughs> five times a column? Well, because I can't I understand how one brain can keep all this straight. One brain can't, but one drawer can. I, uh, when I come across in reading history, which is a constant, a really interesting fact is that that really interests me. I say to myself, that'll interest a lot of other people too, and I will find an occasion to make that fact germane. 
I just, a few moments ago, I was writing a column that will go out next week, and I said, what Biden is doing is he's ignoring, and this came back to me, Jefferson's warning not to undertake great endeavors on slender majorities. Wonderful phrase, slender majorities. So that'll be in the column because I heard it a long time ago. I don't know how, look, I, I, I don't know how the brain works. It's the most mysterious thing in the universe. But I, I mean, why is this phenomenally exciting thing? Why does it store the information that Wayne Terwilliger played for the Cubs in 1952? What a waste of synapses. But there it is. But it, it also stores stuff from Jefferson, which is kind of fun. You have, I want to make two observations uh, about American happiness and then ask you to sort of extrapolate on them for me. One of the themes of American happiness is that what we think of as the past and the present are much more cheek by jowl than the popular imagination would have them. Uh, and another of which is that you have always, always really had a fondness for writing obituaries, which is kind of a lost art in journalism. I think we don't, we don't have nearly enough obituaries. The ones we do aren't very good. Uh, yours are sterling. Can you talk a little bit about just that nearness of past and present and why it's important to be able to look back? Yes. At this point, when quotes Faulkner, the past isn't even past. Uh, more to the point, we, I will quote you Orwell from 1984 to explain why we're fighting about the past, not just monuments, but the 1619 Project and all the rest. Orwell says in 1984, he who controls the past controls the future, and he who controls the present controls the past. That's what the New York Times is trying to do by reframing, as they put it, American history to say, no, no, we weren't founded on liberty in 1776. We were founded on sin and slavery in 1619 when the first slaves arrived. That's why Orwell's formulation goes right directly to what you just said. They're mixed up the past, the present, and the future. They, you can't pull them apart. You shouldn't want to pull them apart. Uh, if history is philosophy teaching by example, we got a lot to learn from what we've been through. And it also helps to immunize us against the sense that radical things are happening all the time. Everything, 9-11 happens and people say, everything has changed. No, no, certain constants same nations, human nature, laws, constitute nothing changes everything. So it gives you it gives you a little perspective. Nice thing I was, I was gonna, if there are two nice things, I'll find another one. But the nice thing so far about turning eighty is you you acquire at least I acquired a kind of mellowness in the sense that I said, what was it that had me so excited during the Carter administration? I was always excited. <laughs> I can't remember any of the things that I thought were earth-shaking. I now, I think, I now realize the earth doesn't shake that often. You, uh, you mentioned Bill Buckley uh, a number of times in in the book. Uh, who are some of the liberal writers who you've really profited from and found valuable over the years? Well, Murray Kempton to begin with. Murray was a columnist uh, in New York. Uh, I say in the introduction to my book that I came east to go to college at Trinity College in Hartford four months after my 17th birthday and did what a boy from central Illinois would do. I went down to New York to see Gotham. And I got off the New York, New Haven, and Hartford Railroad as it then was, went into the magnificent main terminal of Grand Central, plunked down a nickel for a tabloid New York Post, opened it up and encountered Murray Kempton. And I said, my Lord, what fun this is. Fun to read, fun to write. Uh, that nickel may be why I'm a columnist today. Well spent, I must say. Well, that. I mean, it, 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 Murray to begin with. Uh, E.J. Dion is always fun. Some of the people at the at, at the Nick Lemon when he writes in the in the New Yorker very good. There are a, a lot of people on both sides writing intelligent stuff. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's funny. You are my Murray Kempton. Yeah, this is this is it, it is literally true. The the reason I I have a my middle initial in my byline is because of you. You're the first first person I started reading who made me want to be a writer. Uh, so let's okay. So I'll 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 stop my my precious artiste writerly questions and we'll move on to some some more substantive things. Uh, you and you have a column in which you talk about Jonathan Rauch uh, and. The, it is maybe the darkest moment in all of American happiness, uh, which is that you, you say that, uh, you know, perhaps now that, you know, Rauch has said that perhaps now that we've hit rock bottom, we will go about the business of defending our liberal institutions. You, I think your rejoinder to that is, uh, wouldn't that be nice to think so? Will's law is there's no such thing as rock bottom. So that's what I was going to ask you. I, I just want to push you a little more. I mean, how much of this is just the the Willian, you know, tendency to see the world in the conservative fashion, which is to say that imagine that things can always get worse and probably will, uh, which is the conservative persuasion more than, you know, the ideological view of conservatism. Um, How much of it was that and how much of it do you really think that uh, we may not be prompted to defend our liberal institutions? Well, I think there's a very good chance we won't. I mean, liberal institutions are not natural. They don't spring up like dandelions in a suburban lawn. Liberal institutions take work and they presuppose habits and they're supposed to encourage sustaining habits. And I don't think we're doing that now. Again, I come back to what's going on on campuses. 800 years of evolution through thickets of ecclesiastical and political interference. We have evolved these great ornaments of Western civilization our great research universities. I've had the wonderful blessing to get degrees from two of the best, Oxford and Princeton. And it strikes me that we can kick it all away in one or two generations of people who just don't believe in them, who who think that uh, it's too much work uh, to do the things that sustain the essence of democracy, which is a culture of persuasion. And that's certainly not the culture on campus these days. But again, we're 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 inching towards some bipartisan consensus on this, right? I, I don't know if you've paid attention to Gallup has a running series of polls on First Amendment ideas, you know, and free speech and criminalizing. And uh, we have seen some convergence again among both Democrats and Republicans on the idea that maybe free speech isn't so great. We need to have restrictions. Uh, there, you have an essay about Castro. Your your Castro obituary towards the end, where you you talk a little bit about tyranny tourism. And we have that happening now on the right with conservatives flocking to Hungary to fet Viktor Orban and talk about how wonderful it all is. Uh, it seems like we're, it's like student radicalism all, all over again, but from the other side. Uh, how does this end? Well, to figure out how to end it, it doesn't just end of itself. You have to realize the momentum behind this. For 70 years, almost all the jurisprudential writing and law journals about the First Amendment have been arguments about justifying how you balance First Amendment rights against other competing and, so we're told, equally important values, congeniality, communitarian spirit, comedy, etc., Well, once you reduce the core freedom of a free society, the freedom of speech, to just another value to be balanced against others, you're halfway toward losing it. Uh, Because there will always be someone who says, well, the First Amendment's fine, but we really want people to be happy, and we want them to feel safe, and we don't want discord, et cetera, et cetera. what you do then is you have to you, you have to argue for institutions we used to not have to argue for because we assumed we can't can't taken the taken for granted portion of life is shrinking. What you do is you argue for them. You make the case where they came from, why the founders thought it was important, and then you pay attention to the judiciary because the judiciary is all that stands between us and a Congress that will not limit its own powers, 
a Congress that at the same time is so eager to give powers to the presidency, to the executive. There's always a lot of careless talk. Say the president has usurped Congress's powers. If only it had to. Congress hands those powers to the executive on a silver salver because they get rid of responsibility that way. In steps the court, I hope. And the court says, no, we have a non-delegation doctrine. You're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to delegate essentially legislative powers to non-legislative bodies. Uh, again, my in 50 years, the big change, in my opinion, is about the role of courts, which um, I, I want to be much more active and much less deferential than their conservatives used to urge them to be regarding democratic inst majoritarian institutions. So this is, we're going to go to questions from the audience in a minute here. Uh, two, two things before we get there. The first is you wrote a whole book about term limits uh, many moons ago. And I, I don't think I saw anything in uh, American happiness about them. And term limits, the whole, it seems like an idea whose moment has passed. This was a, a very large discussion throughout the 1990s. And I feel as though nobody's talked about it since then. Do you still think that's a valuable idea? Or have, I, think it's, I think it's a valuable idea. I'd still vote for them. Six House terms, two Senate terms, 12 years, quite enough. The reason we don't talk about it anymore is in 1994, 5-4 decision from the Supreme Court, Justice Kennedy, of course, being the swing vote, the <laughs> Supreme Court held that term limits are adding a qualification to the office of uh, the legislatures. And therefore, it has to be done. And frankly, I think the court was right about this. And therefore, you need a constitutional amendment to have them. Therefore, it's not going to happen because the political class in Congress is never going to send to the state legislatures for ratification an amendment limiting their careers. Not going to happen. That's that just killed it. Yeah. All right. So let's let's wrap this up before we go in. Uh, I mean, I, I don't want to seem like I'm I'm simply puffing up what wonderful what a wonderful book American Happiness is. It does have one significant defect, which is that there is not nearly enough baseball in it. Uh, and in fact, you you devote almost as many essays to football as to baseball, which, again, if I could just gently suggest to you is is a problem. So can I just, can I just ask three quick questions? Because we've seen a lot of change in baseball over the last couple of years. Uh, the the extra inning Manfred Mann on second, which is seems to me an abomination, particularly as it is then scored as an error to the team in general. Uh, I would like to ask about that, the idea of legislating against the shift, which seems to be contra the idea of small government, uh, and then the universal DH. And so if I could just put those three in front of you, if you could please answer them in turn, and then we'll go to go to the audience. My, my basic stance toward life often is that of the Duke of Cambridge, who was in charge of the army that had the disaster in the Korean War, Crimean War. He said, all change at any time for any reason is deplorable. Uh, the problem with that is the basic principle of ethical thinking is if you will an end, you have to will the means to that end. The end that I will is more action in baseball. It's been overwhelmed by velocity these very large pitchers throwing 98 and up. Uh, therefore, people say, look, how are we up to score? Get three hits off DeGrom or one home run maybe. So it's all launch angle, hit the ball out of the ballpark. They have shifts, hit it over the shift. Here's the problem. In the most watched game of 2020, game six of the World Series, final game, the ball was put in play on average every 6.2 minutes. In the last 25 minutes of that game, the ball was put in play twice. Now, something has to be done. I hope we don't have to ban the shift, but we might. You know, sports have to change. The NBA changed the configuration of the court because of Wilt Chamberlain. It happens all the time. I hate changing baseball, but I can't. we can't just sit around and wait for Rod Carew and Tony Gwynn to come back and teach people how to hit. I, I have to say that I believe I have read more than one George Will column, which which expressly say that no words in English have ever caused more mischief than something must be done. <laughs> this is something, therefore we must do it. I know it's a syllogism. <laughs> okay, uh, so I want to go to some. You know, I will allow one one baseball question from the from the room. Uh, 
Mr. Will, how did the Chicago Cubs late season fire sale affect your worldview? Uh, confirmed it. Bleak. <laughs> Sad. Uh, <laughs> Cubs win the, the with metronomic regularity. The Cubs win the World Series every 108 years. That means hang on till 2024. Well, here's an interesting question. What are the biggest challenges facing each of our two political parties? The challenge for the Republican Party is to become a political party again. Remember in 2020 at the convention, remember the Republican platform? No, you don't, because there wasn't one. They said in about two sentences, essentially this. We're going to do whatever Donald Trump thinks we ought to do. Next. That was it. So they're not a political party in the normal sense. They're a party terrified of their voters, which means they don't like their voters, which means they don't respect their voters. Uh, that's, they, they have to decide whether they're a political party or a, a kind of vehicle for the communication of resentments and a not unfocused furiousness that defines happiness in terms of the unhappiness of the other people, or are they going to be a political party? The Democrats have a problem, and that is they are going where the country did not tell them to go. They want to envelop the, the American people with a, a, an extremely expensive, costly attempt to have the government allocate wealth and opportunity to an unusual degree which will embitter our politics with distributional conflicts in a way that the market allocating wealth and opportunity doesn't. So the Democrats have to pull up and say, oh, that's right. I remember 1964, Lyndon Johnson wins huge majorities by a landslide against my man, Barry Goldwater. He goes stark raving mad with his large congressional majorities for two years. And the Republican Party, which was pronounced near dead in 1964, wins five of the next six presidential elections. That should be a warning to today's Democrats. Uh, one of the people in the in the chat asks, what books are you reading right now and who is your favorite author or book? I, let me narrow that a moment and say of, of the books that you have written about in the American happiness, are there one or two that stand out to you as being really valuable that you would say... You know, look, go read this. It, it'll it'll really it'll really pay dividends to you as a person. I can't off, off the top of my head think of which ones I've been reading. I tell you, when I I just read a book called Supreme Disorder. It's about the history. It's uh, uh, Ilya Shapiro's history of judicial confirmations. I'm gearing up for the coming uh, firestorm whenever Justice Breyer retires. I've just read The Words That Made Us, uh, Akhil Amar of Yale Law School's latest 800-page tome on early constitutional troubles. I've just read an amazing book called All the Frequent Troubles of Our Days about an American who was active in Berlin and the resistance to Hitler during the Third Reich. She was sentenced to 11 years of hard labor, and Hitler himself was so aware of her that he intervened to make sure she was guillotined. Uh, again, history, just wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, here's a question. Do you have a favorite U.S. president, and why? Uh, well, Lincoln, uh, a central Illinois guy, and, and he, he did the most important thing a conservative can do, which is reconnect us with the American founding again, saying we're not about majority rule, we're about the founder's premises, which are three. A, there is a constant human nature. We're not just creatures who acquire the impress of whatever culture we're situated in. B, therefore, there are natural rights, natural in the sense that they are essential to the flourishing of creatures with our nature. Third, first come rights, then come to government. We have need a government to secure it's the language of the Declaration, to secure our pre-existing rights. Uh, so first Lincoln, then Washington. It's not even close. Uh, the third most important American was never president, and that's John Marshall, in my judgment, the great chief justice. Uh, I, I would put uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, who led, the America, led America through a dispiriting uh, depression and terrifying war, and I think fourth, 
sort of at the front rank of the second rank would be Ronald Reagan, who uh, presided over ending a very dangerous Cold War without a shot being fired. So here's a question about, we, we talked a little bit about family disintegration, uh, which and I, I, I don't know. Did you do a column about the uh, uh, coming apart, the Charles Murray book, coming apart with Fishtown? I think I and, did. Yes, Fishtown yeah, and yeah, Belmont and all that. Yeah. So the, the, this this person asks, what realistic strategies could be identified to solve or, or even more, you know, uh, humbly Im- just improve the family disintegration problem? That's tough. Do you remember how Dan Quayle was ridiculed by saying, you know, Murphy Brown, this television show in the 80s about a single woman, Candace Bergen, played an unmarried mother. He said, there's a cost to this. It's not romantic in most instances. It's hard and it's, uh, there's a terrible cost on mother and child. We, we have to tell people, again, the tremendous predictive force of family structure, uh, that raising children is hard enough with two people. And uh, how you bring this back, again, I, we, we sort of need a John Wesley uh, I sort of wish Barack Obama had every weekend gone to an African-American marriage and said, this is, I mean, because he was a wonder, is a wonderful father, beautiful family, responsible man. Uh, I don't know how you get there from there. Again, this is another one of the, as we were talking a moment ago, once the habits are gone, they're no longer habits and virtues are habits. Yeah. You know, I've always, always I, I wrote a book about demographics and I talked about this a little bit in it. And I, I've always thought that part of it is removing the moral component and talking about it much more along the line of outcomes. Right. Because, because again, you, you just see this. I look, I grew up, uh, I was raised by a single mother. I, you know, I, I turned out, <laughs> God knows, look at me. I'm a, a writer who idolizes George Will. But, uh, you know, this is this is not meant as a, you know, this is not meant to to denigrate anybody. This is not meant to paint anybody as a second class, is it? but is looking at just when you look at the outcomes of it, you look at things like uh, average earning potential, incarceration rates, drug use rates, et cetera, et cetera, uh, that you do get just get better outcomes when when the parents are married. And so maybe that's, you know, in answer to the, the question in the comments, maybe that is one of the ways that we can we can talk about it. Uh, here's a question. What is your opinion? This is interesting. What is your opinion on the current state of antitrust enforcement? Ah, that's a, an acute question because the great argument of the 2020s is going to be antitrust. My old friend Robert Bork wrote the famous book, The Antitrust Paradox, in which he established and it, it got embedded in law the idea that the overriding criterion on, in antitrust should be consumer welfare. Does a combination in business, does a successful business conduce to consumer welfare if it does leave it alone? So ergo, leave Amazon alone, for example. What the progressives want to do is sever antitrust from that so that there can be a kind of free-floating use of antitrust to pursue a whole rainbow of other objectives, full employment, worker empowerment, uh, creativity of some sort. In other words, to use antitrust as a, as a thin end of an enormous wedge of economic planning by the government. Uh, Amy Klobuchar, the uh, senator from Minnesota, has written a very good book, by the way, about antitrust. She's all for getting rid of the consumer welfare standard and having a more free-floating antitrust, but it's quite a good book. Uh, this will be the great argument of, of this decade. I want to throw something in here, too. There is a national security component to this, especially when we're talking about technology. Uh, you know, I, I had a off-the-record conversation with some people from uh, one of our three big tech companies and was talking to them about China, about China's rising tech sector. And one of the arguments they made to me, which is admittedly very self-serving, was, uh, you know, instead of instead of breaking us up, you ought to be thinking about how it is better to have uh, a very powerful player in this sector be an American company. And so there's, there is, I just feel to me like globalization technology introduce all sorts of secondary and tertiary considerations on top of the consumer stuff when we look at antitrust that may be new. 
I don't know. It, maybe maybe there's nothing new under the sun, or maybe this is different. That's one of two real considerations. Here's another one. We should avoid mo- monopoly fatalism. That is the belief that these companies get so big, they're unassailable. Do you realize in the 1970s, the U.S. Justice Department was worried about IBM's monopoly on office typewriters? Remember what a typewriter was? <laughs> I do. Forbes magazine in 2007, and I think November 2007, had a cover story. It said, a billion customers. Can anyone challenge the cell phone king? Apple? No, no, no. Nokia. Yeah. Four months earlier, this had come along, the smartphone. Nokia. Not around. When's the last time you went to an A&P grocery store? In 1930, oh, yeah. right. in 1935, people were worried about the monopoly they had. They had 15,000 A&P stores, about one for every 9,000 Americans. Unassailable. Gone. So do not believe. I don't think anything lasts forever, and certainly not Facebook or all this other stuff. Here's a question. What are your thoughts on term limits for the Supreme Court? I'm willing to discuss that. It could either be age or number of years. Certainly, the number of years served has radically increased as longevity has increased. Do you know, I just read this in Shapiro's book, two years ago, there was an important lower court decision rendered by a judge appointed by Linda Johnson. So when you that's one of the reasons we fight so much over these appointments is they really go, I mean, Ronald Reagan is still governing through some of these judges. So uh, I'm willing to discuss that. Also, because we have had judges who were uh, overtaken by decrepitude. Oliver Wendell Holmes was. William Douglas stayed on the court in a wheelchair after he'd been incapacitated by a stroke. So it's discussable. Do you think there would be benefit to regularizing just the sequence of vacancies? I mean, would that... Because so so much of what here, I'll, I'll ask my own question here. It seems to me that a good deal of the problem we have is what you said earlier in our conversation. The stakes are too high, right? The stakes we have elections. It is the opposite of the old joke about faculty life, right? That the you know the the fights are so terrible because the stakes are so low. The fights are so terrible because the stakes are too high. And part of one of those components is Supreme Court because you never know when somebody's going to get to do three appointments in four years or something like that. Would regularizing the retirement schedule be helpful in that sense, do you think, or no? I don't on balance, because to do so is to say we want to give both political persuasions in the country regular access to this. That encourages the belief, which I think is profoundly false and pernicious, uh, that indeed these are political justices. I don't think that's fair to the justices. Uh, I think they're remarkably free from, uh, and I, I mean Sotomayor and Kagan to Alito and Justice Thomas, I don't think they're political. And I don't want any reform that encourages people to think that there are Democratic judges and others. All right. So we have time for one more question, and then I'm gonna I'm going to take moderator, moderator's privilege and ask you a quick set of lightning round questions, which I think you will quite enjoy. Uh, but the the last question will be I'm I'm sorry to say a pretty serious one. And uh, somebody asks, what are the chances that 20 years from now we'll still be living in a liberal democracy? Is it, is it possible that we are headed towards an illiberal democracy? It's an excellent question because it puts into our vocabulary a phrase that is not an oxymoron. A lot of people say democracies are inherently liberal, that is, respectful of rights and individuals as rights-bearing creatures. I think there's a chance, it's not yet a probability, but a chance, that we will be an illiberal democracy in the sense that rights will be said to inhere in groups, that individuals will be defined by group membership. I'm talking about identity politics, obviously. And that our rights will be uh, understood as spaces of autonomy granted by the goodness of the heart of government. And therefore, uh, we will be heavily regulated, state broken, and not nearly as free as we are. I think there's a 30% chance. Okay. So uh, that's, a, that's, that's a pretty, boy, 30%. I was going to say that's an optimistic answer, but 30% is, is pretty high. Uh, you, you wouldn't get on a plane that had a 30% <laughs> I would not. I would not. All right. So a very quick lightning round. I'm going to present you with two options. I just need a one word answer of the two options. 
Books or magazines? Books. Jefferson or Hamilton? Hamilton. Tolstoy or Waugh? Waugh. Typewriter or longhand? Typewriter. Brian Wilson or Bruce Springsteen? Brian Wilson. Help me, Rhonda. Mike Trout or Barry Bonds? Oh, Trout. That's uh, That will have to be the last word. Uh, thank you, George, for joining us today. Uh, this was just lovely. Your book is American Happiness and Discontents, The Unruly Torrent from 2008 to 2020. I'd also like to thank everybody in the audience for participating and for watching and spending time with us. If you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. I'm Jonathan Last. Thank you. Stay safe. Stay healthy. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.